Hello, and welcome back to Fearless Questions, where we follow our questions to freedom. I'm your host, Jeff Blackburn, and you guys, today we are very lucky to have our new friend, William Paul Young, with us. Paul, how are you doing today? Everything that matters is good. I'm actually a little bit tired. Uh, I've been, I've, I just did a 10 cities in 11 days or something like that. So, um, so yeah. Mostly um, by car or by plane or by bicycle? Well, it was mostly by car. So I, I flew into Toronto okay. and then um, we were in Southern uh, Oregon uh, just last night. But 10 days prior to that, we're all mostly in Southern Ontario. Oh, well, so, after we yeah, get done here, we'll let great. you go take a nap. All right. Uh, no, um, I'm going to bed. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that works too. That works too. Well, um, well, Paul, you're uh, you've got so much of your story is public. Um, from from people that are not aware, um, you actually, uh, while you were born in Canada, um, and they had some sort of election day in British Columbia just recently. I think. I hope that went well for everyone in your extended community. Um, uh, yeah, my my family is all up there. So my parents are both. Um, in the central south part of British Columbia, and my sister and a brother. Okay, so no, you can't mail in votes. You're, are you fully like U.S. or do you get to carry dual citizenship? I have dual citizenship. All right, all right, and, uh, I, and I won't tell you how I got it because it'll make some Americans <laughs> mad. <laughs> uh, people get mad too easy these days. Um, no, I know. Well, Paul, you also grew up, you moved early on. You grew up basically in a Stone Age tribe in New Guinea, which had a large impact on your life in a number of ways that, that I've heard you talk about. So while most of you have uh, heard of Paul through his books, um, you know, The Shack, which is now a major film, you've got Crossroads, you've written Eve, and which have combined to sell, uh, according to the most recent numbers I saw from Simon & Schuster, with somewhere over 25 million copies throughout the world, which... I assume sends you on quite the unexpected journey in life, <laughs> especially when I never intended to be a published author. So, yeah, that'll that'll throw you for a loop. I mean, I was I was doing I was doing what everybody does, you know, uh, what whatever your hands find to do, you just do with all your strength. So I was cleaning toilets and shipping out soldering tips and mm. um, hotel night clerk and food processing. I was doing three jobs at the time that. I I wrote the first full draft of the book um, mm. as a Christmas present for my kids. Okay. And uh, Kim and I have six children. Our okay. youngest was uh, 13 at the time. And um, no, didn't have any clue <laughs> that this was coming. This is totally God's sense of humor. Yeah, that sounded like some glamorous work you were doing there while you were writing. Not so... You, or, you or know, <laughs> all, all work is holy. Yeah. And... Um, and so, you know, it, it did things for us that were so important. It, mm. We put food on the table and shoes on, on the feet. And, and um, nah, I'm, I'm grateful for that. And I can always go back to doing it because, you know, <laughs> I know how to clean toilets. There you go. There you go. Well, most people have heard, of, have heard of the books, I think. But something I just wanted to mention that was been important to me, to, to listeners, is that as I followed along, you know, Paul, your work from a distance, I've found that you're a safe guy to listen to. Safe um, because I've heard your heart come through even more loudly than the success you've experienced. Um, and that safe space that you've managed to create for those that you encounter really seems to reveal the depth and the reality of a life that's really been transformed by love. So I just want to say thanks for all your hard work over the years that I know you've walked through um, quite painfully sometimes. 
that has shaped you into someone that's really blesses the rest of us. Um, and, uh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. And it does take hard work, uh, to, to actually own what you've done and, and make the choices to change. It is hard work and, and people who are doing the work, I have, I have such great respect for that. Mm. It's not easy. No. Well, Paul, you've got a brand new book out and we could talk about the shack and we might reference back to that at some point, which um, I'm sure some listeners would enjoy, but you've actually got a new book out called lies. We believe about God. And, um, and I'm going to let you run with the conversation here in a minute, but I think I'd also like listeners to hear a couple of things at the outset that you say in your new book that I think I thought were helpful for a framework to understanding where you came from on it. One is that I've heard you say, I don't know if you said this one in the book or not, but you, I've heard you say whatever is precious to you right now. Um, how do you finish that? You still want to remain precious by the end? Yes, that comes from my friend um, who actually I, I was just texting with. Okay. And, and um, he has this line. He's a, he's a Irish Catholic background, you know, man's man. Mm-hmm. His name's Ronnie. And Ronnie, ha- he is a gentle poet, but he, you know, he played semi-professional rugby for 25 years. So it's a tough guy. And, <clears throat> but he starts many of his conversations or soon into the conversation with that line. He'll say, you know, when at the end of our conversation, I don't want anything that is precious to you now to be less precious to you then. Mm. And, and it is such a guarding statement and respectful for the other and um and i love that i and so i've totally adopted it well no i it's great because i also you know i just think it helps um people understand your posture with this book and you know you also said that um uh when you talked about the nature of the book you mentioned towards the end that every chapter that you that you wrote um uh, was keeping in mind like who Jesus was, like it was all about. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, um, yeah. So I just thought, you know, as we jump into this, um, maybe just start with the nature of this new book, because, you know, you take a step away here, um, from really, yeah, tremendous success (laughs) with fiction and you give nonfiction a try. And I just wonder what, what was sort of the impetus behind kind of this new work and direction? I've I've always played with nonfiction in one sense or another because I'm a voracious reader and I like to read philosophy and psychology and and theology you know okay. some of the heavy stuff so so it wasn't like it was a foreign thing for me um, but undergirding fiction are are nonfiction beliefs and thoughts and things that you trust mm-hmm. so it wasn't a big huge step I actually prefer fiction. I think it gives you so much more uh, capability of creating space for people to hear for themselves. Um, nonfiction, if you don't be careful, becomes a way to shut down space. And I think that's why I love story. So even inside this book is full of stories. Yeah. And um, um, but that the impetus behind it was started with <laughs> started with a Twitter uh, feed that I was doing, okay. and. Um, and I was doing these things you'll never hear God say, because I've been intrigued by you know because I grew up in the in the church, even modern evangelical fundamental uh, um, missionary kid preacher's kid. So, okay. I mean, I'm I'm embedded in it. And uh, one, we didn't grow up where questions were allowed, not really. Mm-hmm. And and two, 
we we didn't know how to grapple with some of the basic things without having to be right. You know, we were so addicted to being right, like we knew everything, mm-hmm. and um, and this was this was a way to look at negative space rather than positive space because I grew up in a world where you were only allowed positive space, okay. and uh, anybody that works in art, they'll tell you that. If you pay attention to negative space, all of a sudden the positive space becomes that much more remarkable. And um, so instead of saying, you know, what are the words that God would say, which everybody can quote the scriptures and stuff, mm-hmm. um, it's like, what would what would God not say? And <clears throat> and suddenly, all kinds of stuff came to the surface because the focus was on negative space. You know, because um, there's a lot of things that God wouldn't say. God wouldn't say, I, I love you, but I don't like you, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, actually, that's, that was early on in the book, and I knew that I was going to read this book as soon as I saw the first chapter title because, and I've mentioned this on my program in the past, but, you know, that actually, that was the lie that dogged, you know, kind of defined my experience most of my life, that idea that God loves me, but he doesn't like me. And right. so maybe selfishly, Paul, I'd just love it if we could – maybe jump in there today with that conversation because it's a change of belief that's been so critical for me in my life. Um, maybe you could share your experience, what God's liking of you and other people uh, did for you. And I, that might even have been the part of the book where you talked about visiting a, a women's prison or something. As well. I did. I did. It was at the end of that chapter. Okay. And, uh, and it is the first chapter of the book. Um, and it introduces some really fundamental truths or, in this case, uh, some of the lies that we assume. And, and so one of the questions that you have to ask is, so what is it about me that God doesn't like? You know, and, and that raises to the surface a whole bunch of what us religious folks have been holding on to a lot, and that is, well, we're worthless. You know, there's nothing good in me. We even sing these songs, you know, like, you are good, you are good, there's nothing good in me. And, uh, and that reinforces the idea that, um, yeah, uh, it's performance, right? And I'm not good at it. Mm. So if I'm not good at it, uh, then how could God, how could God like me? Um, and I, you know, and it really is embedded in a performance mentality as far as how we would define a relationship with God. Mm. <laughs> it, it really wasn't a relationship. It was, it was like, tell me what you want me to do and I'll do my best to do it, but I'm always going to fail. So, yeah. you know. I, you have to love me because you're God and God is love. So, but it um, uh, doesn't mean you have to like me. And I think in in our own experience, um, I had that experience where the people who were supposed to love me did not communicate that they 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 liked me. And um, and you know, when the little story that you're talking about was, um, I was up in a women's prison up in uh, Edmonton in the middle of winter. It was like thirty below or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, we went um, to the women's prison, and there's a couple hundred copies of the shack going through the the prison. Okay. And um, the women the women came um, just voluntarily, and and I, I don't remember. I probably talked to them about all the prisons that has existed in my own heart. Mm-hmm. And um, and at at the end, I, I just stayed and um, and I interacted with them. And one woman, I. I, I kind of break the rules when I'm in prison because I, <laughs> I hug people. I mean, what are they going to throw? Are you going to throw me in jail? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, 
but so I, I hugged her and she just completely fell, and not just kind of fell apart. She mm-hmm. was sobbing so uncontrollably for minutes. And, um, and, and she hadn't said anything. And then finally, through her sobs, she says, do you really think Papa's fond of me? Mm. And I said, honey, he's especially fond of you. Mm. And she just, just broke it again, right? So she's just, and then when she's done, she just says, that's all I needed to know. That's all I needed to know. And, and as she's walking away, I'm thinking like, ah, honey, that is all any of us needs to know. And um, in, the, in the shack, there's a scene where um, Sophia, which is the wisdom of God, right out of Proverbs chapter 8. And Sophia says, um, so which of your children do you, do you love the most? Hmm. And any, any parent that has any degree of health cannot answer that question. Because there is something about the way we love our children. Yeah. And whenever, you know, people say, which child do you love the most? I say, it's whatever one I'm thinking about at the moment. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm, I'm especially fond of them. And when I, when I used that line in the shack, I was, I was trying to change the subject and object relationship. Because when we say God is love or God loves you, it's about God. And, but when I say, you know, Jeff, I'm especially fond of you. See, that's about you. And that, and it changes everything. That is to say, I like you. Not only do I love you because, you know, that's who God is. So Mm -hmm. God loves, but it's, I like you. And, and again, there's another piece that underlies that whole thing. And that is, in order to like me, you have to know the truth about who I am, not just my presentation, right. not just a facade, you know? Yeah. And, that, and that's a whole nother thing. So all of these, all of these uh, 28 lies that are in that book, um, the new one, they, they're all intertwined. Yeah. So as you go deeply into one, you're going to start to run into the others, and they'll all start referring back to um, the tangle yeah. And I think a lot of us grew up in a tangle of lies. Yeah, it was definitely my experience reading is that it does seem like there's a lot of overlap. And, and even for people that, that uh, were really moved by the shack, we'll, we'll see some of the thought behind probably the, the story that you tell that undergirds that story. Um, you know, one of the, the things that kind of goes along with what you were, you were just saying is, um, you know, I spent you may, you wouldn't know this, but I spent a, some time training with a group of people who have sort of have a behind the scenes outreach ministry to corporate folks and professional athletes that use a lot of Christian apologetics as a tool in relational ministry. And we were sort of in this mutual vetting process and I might, you know, be with them or not. We got together with this group of 500 men, a bunch of well-known Christian apologists and a, some well-known athletes. And the conversation turns towards God standing at the gates of heaven, asking why they should be let in. And I and I know that they were headed towards the explanation of it's not our work, but you know the work of Jesus on the cross. And it's it wasn't so much that I disagreed totally, but I realized that something had changed in me, and that in positioning God in that attitude towards people, like waiting to be appeased, I realized that I no longer thought it was a true representation of what God is really like. And it's like I, I, it's like I knew in that moment that whatever my life of telling people about God would look like moving forward, it would have to be more truly representative of, of God's relentless love that I'd come to know and. 
you know, you tell a great story in this in the new book about Peter and the pearly gates in religion. <laughs> I wonder if you'd be willing. My to, favorite joke. Is sure, it? I'll tell it. Yeah, share it with us. Oh, it's so great, and uh, it's my favorite joke, and it has <laughs> been for some time. I haven't found one to replace it yet, okay. and so it's a standard. Peter's at the pearly gates, and if you don't happen to know, Peter is the iconic person who Jesus gave the keys. Actually, gave the keys of the kingdom. Um, and uh, so he's over the centuries become the one who stands at the pearly gates uh, and kind of welcomes you in or tells you you can't be there. And so, <laughs> with no breaks, apparently, just has to stand there for all eternity. I know, I know, I know. It's just like, oh, sorry, Peter's got to go to the bathroom. I'm <laughs> hold the line. And uh, so, this guy gets to the pearly gates and he's, he's not sure what he's supposed to do. Uh, does he just walk through? Because uh, there's nobody really guarding it. And Peter, who is there, sees his consternation and walks over to him and says, um, so what's the problem? The guy says, well, you know, um, do I just walk in? And Peter goes, well, it depends. And he goes like, it depends. It depends on what? He says, well, it depends on how many points you have. Uh, I have to have points to get in. Oh yeah. Well, how many points do I need? Peter says, "Well, you need a hundred. And the guy goes, "A hundred points." Okay. Um, <laughs> well, well, he says, "You know, for the last fifteen years, I've been Saturday nights. I've been working down at the soup kitchen. You know, helping to feed the poor." Mm-hmm. Peter goes, "Oh yeah, I mean, I'll totally give you a point for that." <laughs> it's like a point. And he says, yeah, totally worth the point. And he says, well, I, you know, I was a pastor for 35 years. I, like, married people and buried people, and I preached. Um, and I, Peter goes, I, I, I don't know. He goes, Peter, 35 years. Peter goes, oh, okay, I'll give you a point for that. Oh, no, he was hoping for more. Oh, and he's like, that's kind of my whole life. I've got two points. <laughs> and he's really now concerned. And just then, he sees somebody else walking past them. And it's a guy he knows from the same town. He doesn't know him well. He's a C&E Christian, you know, mm-hmm. Christmas and Easter. And, uh, and, but he's got a little coffee shop downtown, and he seems to be a nice guy. And, and he just walks right past the two of them and in through the pearly gates. Okay. And he goes, Peter, Peter, are you telling me that that guy's got 100 points? And Peter laughs. He goes, oh, no, he just doesn't play this game. <laughs> oh, no. That, I it, love that. It, Such it, a two-edged sword. It is, and it's funny, but it's uh, that's one of these questions or kind of stories you bring up that has this, like, zinger of, like, an exposing uh, struggle beneath it that people are experiencing, you know, this idea of performing for God. Um, you know, you kind of built after that story towards this idea. You said something to the effect of human beings form religions around the things that matter to them and, and the fears that drive them towards certainty. And um, I'm just wondering, I mean, what is that about? Like, what is this push for that certainty that people are so drawn to? Oh, because we'd rather have control than trust. You know, um, most of us, our trust has been violated in, our, in the way we grew up in one way or another. And um, so we became, even if we hated ourselves, we became the only ones we could trust. Mm. And so everything turns to control. And then we build systems in order to have some certainty, right? We, Mm. 
Um, and even those controls a total myth, we're dedicated to it. And that's why religion is attractive to us because it, you don't have to actually trust God. You just have to know what you're supposed to do. And if you can do it better than somebody, you, it gives you a better odds of, you know, not going to hell or something. Hmm. And um, so there, there is that piece of it. But I think that the, uh, and a more fundamental uh, aha moment is, is this statement, that, that God is not, has never been religious at all, hmm. that God is not a religious being. And, uh, and if you think about it, you know, like there wasn't a time where it was like, so who's doing communion this week or where are we meeting? You know, <laughs> who's got the, who's got the order of service? Are we, we going to do something creative this week? You know, all of that. And it's, God is not a religious being. God is a relational being. And, uh, and this ties into one of the other lies is that, that we don't think God submits. And, and I think he submits all the time. In fact, I don't think God saying submit one to another is to tell us something that is not already the reality of the very being of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So mm. um, this God then submits to our religious systems in order to be with us in them and begin to destroy all the darkness of them mm. um, in a, uh, through love and presence. And, and um, that starts bending the way you you start to think not only of religion in general christianity specifically because that's a, that's our tradition mm-hmm. um but you also start thinking about uh how you look at the lens through which you look at say the hebrew scriptures what we call the old testament mm-hmm. uh, because you suddenly begin to see that this is a god who by submitting to our religious systems speaks our language in order to destroy our dependence on the darkness that we have now come to consider sacred, hmm. and um, and uh, you start looking at that, and lights go off everywhere. Yeah, you know, you talk about you use the word submit, and I think for some people, um, particularly from a more uh, a classical faith background, that feels like a term of weakness that almost sounds uh, wrong to associate with God. Like there's something. Um, yeah. that doesn't seem fair, you know, like how can you call God like somebody who submits? Um, and yet you, you say that's very much a part of who he is. And I wonder how do you help somebody understand that? Well, even in your own walk with God, how many times has God said, you know, you are so bad at these choices and decisions. I'm going to just do them for you. Mm. right? God never does that. <laughs> no. And so even in relationship to us, God doesn't do it. What do we think the incarnation is? And, and that God becomes a baby. If that's not submission, or how about the cross itself, mm. that God submits to our torture device? Yeah. And, and by, by climbing onto our torture device, destroys its power and transforms it into an icon and a monument of grace? Mm. I mean... That's classic submission. Yeah. You know, you know, it's just, I think, I think we're so blind because we're so power centered and desirous for certainty and control that we can't conceive of a God who is different than the darkness that we assume um, to be righteous. Hmm. Right. Hmm. You know, it feels like we're going towards God's character even more here. And um, this might feel a little out of 
off the path to you, but it, it ties back to me. I've heard you, so I'll ask you to kind of go back in time a little bit here for a second, because I wonder if you'd be willing to to share your story when you were years ago when you were on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Because ah, I just think well, that was that's, that's that was, great. It's an amazing story, and you had a profound exchange with Regis about your son. And then I'd like to kind of tie that back in here in a second to some of the stuff in your book. So if you'd be willing to, that's awesome. I know it was. <clears throat> this was back way before the shack. This is um, in the year two thousand, and uh, and uh, our daughter Amy, who was I think sixteen at the time, she she called the eight hundred number when she was watching the show, and it's and and they said, you know, if you want to be on the show, call the eight hundred number. Uh-huh. But she called it, and then the whoever the automated voice was says, you you cannot participate if you're not eighteen. So she hands the phone to me and says, Dad, answer these questions. I'm going like, what? What are you talking about? Well, that starts a whole chain reaction that that was a Thursday night. And Sunday, I'm sitting in front of Regis in New <laughs> York City. That's crazy. Oh, it's totally nuts. Because if you – they told us what the how someone gets there. Mm-hmm. And it's wild. They had two different times they had to draw names out of a hat. And um, – you know, uh, the, like thousands of people answer the first three questions right. And then that starts the whole, you know, you get five questions, but then they draw names and, and they get down to 10 people. Those are the ones that sit in the outer ring, the ring of fire. So I, you know, to, to make a long story short, I got to New York. They were, they were pre-taping shows. They were stacking them up so that they could take a 30-day break. Okay. Um, First time in the history of the show and this is at the height i mean it's like three or four times a week that it's on yeah and each show is an hour long and um because it's a kind of unique thing you know the the whole the whole structure of the show was pretty fantastic so um we ended up in the second group that was being taped that day and okay. and then found out that we were the last group before the crew was going to take their first 30-day break okay. and i and i um, I got in the hot seat as the last contestant, the holdover for the next show. So I literally had to go back to Portland um, uh, and wait 30 days because I answered two questions. So I made it all the way to $200. <laughs> and, and, I, and I had to answer two. I, I had to, uh, after answering two questions, I had to fly home, wait 30 days, fly back to New York and uh, start at, you know, at, for $400. So um, the first trip I took, I took Chad, who was our oldest. And the second trip, I took him because nobody had seen Chad on the show. So it didn't matter if okay. who was with me. Right. And, uh, and Chad, uh, who was like 1920 at the time, he was a Caltech uh, Cal student, but he was, um, he was on a break. Um, he became one of my lifelines, you know, phone a friend. Okay. And have five phone friends who are just waiting on the line, waiting to see if uh, they can help you out with different expertise. And um, we got to a question that it was about a movie, and I knew that that Chad hadn't seen it, but I hadn't seen it either. Okay. And I so I gave it to the audience, you know, as uh, uh, poll the audience uh, lifeline. Sure. You know, and and they totally blew it. I mean, when it came back. They were like 22%, 24%, 21%, 25%. like, thanks and a lot. Even, yeah, exactly. There was no way to tell. Because usually, you know, if, if they've seen it, it goes spikes way up high and you, right. can, you can pick that and trust it. And, uh, but I couldn't. 
So I said, I want to use a phone a friend. And who do you want to call? I want to call Chad. And uh, so we have 30 seconds. And I knew he was sitting in front of four high-speed internet connections, <laughs> okay. which, which was totally copacetic. They're allowed to do that. And what dollar and figure are you at at this point? I'm at 8,000. Okay. So All it's right. not high. And I've just blown one lifeline on it. And now okay. I'm calling Chad. All right. And uh, so they, they bring Chad on. And once he's on, we have 30 seconds. Um, and so I switched the question around. And it was um, in, in the movie High Fidelity, which Rockstar played himself. And because uh, I knew that by switching it around, he could immediately go to the, the movie, okay. um, the internet. And um, so about, I mean, he is nervous as a cat on a hot <laughs> and, and uh, I would and, be too. Uh, I was like, you don't oh, screw it up for your dad. Oh, I know. It's such pressure. Yeah. And, um, and then uh, we got to the, like 15 seconds in and he says, Bruce Springsteen, like a question, right? Uh -huh. And 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 it flashes through my mind, Chatty. I don't need a question, really, right? <laughs> you know. And then and then right on the heels of that came the thought, wait, I am right now on national television with one of our kids, uh. with my son. Like, who cares if he's wrong? I don't <laughs> care if he's wrong. This is like the best. And and the time is dwindling out. Yeah. And I say, I, out of just part of how our family um, loves one another, I just patted my chest and I said, Chatty, I love you with all my heart. Uh, and the phone, and the phone went dead. Which, which he's actually on the line to find out whether he you, you do okay in that in his question or not. Okay. So I'm, I decided to go with him regardless. Well, the phone goes dead. Regis looks at me and he says, How much are you gonna love him? if he's wrong. And I tell you, there was a pause and it was like the presence of God comes down on this place. And it was so palpable. Mm. And, and my emotions come rising up because, I mean, Regis has just tapped into so much of my religious background, my relationship with my dad. And, and I had said, I love you with all my heart. And he says, how much are you going to love him if he's wrong? Mm. Right? Mm. And, and I looked at Regis and I said, what do you mean? He will always be my son. Mm. And I tell you, that little interchange, it, we got mail from all over the country. We lived in a little town outside of Portland called Boring, Boring, Oregon. <laughs> <laughs> I always like to say home of the Boring Baptist Church, you know. But, um, but uh, we got more mail, like uh, um, millionaire, winner, uh, Boring, Oregon, and it would get to me. And, and people would, they didn't write about anything. They would, uh, they'd write about that s simple scene with my son. There was a there was a major talk show host in Minneapolis, and we have some of our extended family lives in uh, in Minnesota. And um, um, one of them calls us and says, "We just heard this guy on the on the radio this morning. This is the day after it aired." Okay. Uh, and um, and he's a kind of a really tough guy, um, sort of a investigative guy, you know. Okay. But he gets on the show and talks about this for 10 minutes he says folks i gotta tell you something um 
I, I never thought I'd say this, but I was watching Who Wants to Be a Millionaire last night with my son. And I think for the first time in the show, we got to watch a human being. He said, there was an interchange and he talked about it. And he said, mm. I'm watching this with my son. And I turned to my son and I said, do you see the way this man loves his son? That's the way it's supposed to be. Oh. Right? So beautiful, man. So beautiful. Oh, my gosh. And, oh. and it's just, you know, who who cares? It's about the relationship. Yeah. And it's about saying, you know what? I love you because you exist, yeah. not because you're right or wrong. Yeah. And, uh, and we just... We have that in our own hearts toward our kids or our grandkids, yeah. but we don't think God has, you know, we think God is like, not like that. Well, and that's, you know, first of all, thank you. That's such a cool story. And I, I just wanted you to share that because so the people understand really this dynamic that you understand about what love is. And then you go into the book and let me read you a quote from it. Then just a couple yeah. of questions. Oh, by that, the way, Chad, Chad was right. Oh, was he? I, I, he was right. That's good. So I'm impressed. I've seen the movie. And I don't remember that. I would have just said Jimmy Cusack because that's all the, the only name that, that resonated with me. So that, that's exactly who was in it too. Okay, but um, so no, I'll, I'll read you a quote and then a couple of questions that this section of your book stirred up in me, um, and then let's just see what stirs up in you and how you might talk to someone that's kind of swimming in these thoughts somewhere. Okay, um, you said that you said doesn't it seem intuitively wrong to be desperately afraid of a torture devising God? and yet hope to spend eternity with this God. Um, and we're, I'm saying this on the heels of you talking about what a father loving a son is supposed to look like. And, and it made me wonder, how do you talk about the wrath of God in a way that makes sense of what we are told as an all-loving father? And, and how can you talk about being able to trust an all-loving father that is willing to kill his own son to show us how much he apparently loves these other kids? I mean, how do you, right. how do you talk to someone so about that? You're dealing with two fundamental things. You're dealing with a, a view of the atonement in which God the Father beats the hell out of his son, Jesus, mm -hmm. in order to be right with the human race. Or to open up the possibility that if you make the right choices and say the right stuff, um, the sinner's prayer or whatever, mm -hmm. that you get you get to go across the bridge that Jesus builds. You know, that's <laughs> that's an atonement theory that I I flat out disagree with. And it, and it is a theory, and it is a modern theory. Mm -hmm. um, you can find little bits of scraps of, uh, of certain people in the early church, but it's, it was definitely not mainstream at all. And, um, but, you know, we become so mind-centered uh, mm -hmm. in the last few hundred years and so legal in terms of the forensic... Uh, idea of the the nature and character of god that we got lost in it so mm. let's go back to your first question yeah how do we how do we deal with the wrath of god and and um i believe in the fiery fury of god's nature but i believe that that fury is for us and not against us if you live long in this world there are things in this world that are so wrong and the only right response is fury. But here's the difference. The fury of God is always for us and not against us. It is always on our behalf. And it is, it is opposed to anything, whether it's within us or outside of us, anything that is not of love's kind. And uh, George MacDonald, who was the the writer and the pastor in Scotland who um, wrote Fantasties, who led C.S. Lewis 
into a relationship with Jesus. Lewis said that when he read Fantasties, which was an adult fairy tale, that his mind was, uh, his imagination was baptized and it took the rest of him 18 years to catch up. <laughs> but, he, but he also said from that point on, he never wrote anything that George MacDonald was not in. And George MacDonald wrote this little book called uh, Unspoken Sermons, Creation and Christ. And, and in it, he makes these beautiful statements such as, if you trust the goodness of God, you will run to God with your arms wide open and you will say, please judge me to the core and burn out of me everything that keeps me from being fully human and fully alive. Mm -hmm. My connection to that is the fact that I'm a father and a grandfather. Um, I have, uh, we have a daughter who has been fighting a brain tumor oh. for a, a decade and, wow. and, and she's been prayed for and all of that. And I believe God can heal. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, uh, but God has not, uh, but because of that little piece of tissue in her head and her brain, she began to consider herself as damaged goods. Hmm. And that, that led her into some really hurtful ways of thinking. Of, it was a lie. It was hmm. totally a lie. And I'm her dad, right? Hmm. I'm her dad. Give me the power to be a flaming fire of fury. And I don't, not only would I go in there and destroy this piece of wayward tissue, I would burn out of her every sense of that lie that says that she is not worthy of being loved. Where does that fury come from? That fury comes from the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is opposed to anything that is not of love's kind. And, and I trust that now. Now, I grew up thinking that that fury was, was not for me, was against me, and that Jesus had to kind of convince God the Father to maybe let me in, you know? Yeah. And, and, like but there was Jesus was the good guy and God's the, yeah. the big heavy. He's trying to confuse God and not let him figure out that we really were bad. Yeah, and, and it's worse than that. Yeah. Jesus ends up being the one who comes to save us from God the Father. Mm. God the Father becomes the darkness that Jesus then appeases. Mm. And that's why I have a fundamental problem with the atonement theory that says that that God poured his wrath on his son and turned his back on his son and all of that kind of stuff. So mm. that's part of the huge conversation that, that we need to have and we are having. Mm -hmm. And really, really great theologians uh, over the centuries, right from the early church on, have have stepped into the fray and modern theologians as well right now are are dealing with this and saying there is something inherently wrong if we're expected to run to our our abuser as our savior yeah. um, and um it's it's an issue yeah people really have to start doing some like uh intellectual gymnastics to make it fit together don't they like to uh, hold the idea of god being love and some of these ideas together yeah. it's it's interesting to be sure and they have to contradict scripture itself right because one of my favorite questions is so if you're going to be judged do you would you rather be judged by god the father or jesus <laughs> you know and everybody picks jesus and i say well good that's a good choice because john's gospel right says the father judges no one, but has put all judgment into the hands of his son. Uh, one of um, one of our sons, uh, our youngest, a few years ago came and said, "Dad, 
God is agape, right? Which is the Greek word for love, you know, and it means other-centered self-givingness. And, um, and I said, yeah, because that's what it says in 1 John, God is agape. And he said, so there's this passage in Corinthians, you know, chapter 13, the love passage. Mm-hmm. That's all agape, right? And I said, yeah. He said, so would it be legitimate for me to, instead of saying, God, uh, love is this, love is this, I could put lo- God in there because it's agape. Mm-hmm. I said, yeah, yeah. He said, okay, so, so God is kind and God is patient. And what about this one? Love does not keep a record of wrongs. Mm. Can I put God does not keep a record of wrongs? If God does not keep a record of wrongs, then what's the basis for eternal conscious torment? You know, mm. that's a legitimate question. Yeah. And there's two things that came out. I'm really, you, and if you don't mind jumping back forward and then back here, when it comes to that idea of God not keeping records of wrong, it's like we hold on to that, but we hold an intention with which you actually said you made a mistake in the shack. I did. And I wonder if you might talk about that because it does seem appropriate to kind of hold that thought together with this idea yeah. of record of wrongs. I, I think so too. Um, so um, it was after the shack had started its huge juggernaut kind of thing um, that I realized that I'd made a really fundamental mistake. But I haven't changed it <laughs> because, one, <laughs> I kind of like that it has a glaring mistake and it gives me an opportunity to talk about it. Hmm. So it's when first McKenzie, when he goes back to the shack because he gets the note and he's there's part of him somewhere that is hoping that God will actually show up. And the God that he grew up with and the God that he had that little hope for actually is a no-show. Hmm. And, and he has this furious moment where he just rips the place apart and he declares, um, I'm done. I hate you. And, um, so that's, and to me, that's my statement that that God that McKenzie believed in, because I'm McKenzie, Mm -hmm. that that God actually doesn't exist. That in that sense, um, I sit in the same seat as the atheist. I don't think the God that they don't think exists, exists either. Mm -hmm. And, um, so then Mackenzie's he's done. He's on his way out, and suddenly uh, the transformation of the, of the ground around him and the environment changes, and he's drawn back to the shack that he just left that was just this wreck of a place, and it's been transformed. And, and out, out from within his own shack comes the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, but he doesn't know who they are. Doesn't recognize them. They're, of course, you know, because I use imagery that's outside of our Western box. And mm-hmm. um, and when he goes into the shack, he looks to where his daughter Missy's blood stain should be, and it's not there. That's the mistake. It should still be there. Just because you you work through the stuff of your life doesn't mean that the evidence of it just vanishes. There are still nail scars on Jesus' wrists. And in the book and in the movie, there are nail scars on Papa's wrists, God the Father, and on Saryu, the Holy Spirit's wrists. Um, and that that is a, a statement that resonates with Orthodox theology all the way back to the early church, mm-hmm. that there was no separation on the cross. And 
But the beauty of, of having the blood stain there or the nail scars on the wrists, it's, it's not only does God submit to our torture machine, the cross, but in that submission, not only breaks its power, but transforms the loss and the machine itself into an icon and a monument of grace. And I think that's profound. I think that means that there is nothing that I can bring to the table that is so dark and so dead and so lost that God can't climb into it and begin to co-create something that is that is living and and whole and beautiful. Yeah. Well, and I know, you know, you talk about it being really an orthodox thought, but it's even, you know, for anybody who's experienced actual real pain in their lives and had to work through it and even my own journey, not only pain done to me, but pain I've caused others. It's act. You almost, you wouldn't be being real with your experience to say that there's not still scars there. you can't pretend those things didn't happen. And yet it does seem, I don't know if you ever saw that movie Slumdog Millionaire, but there's this beautiful thing at the end where the girl who's got this big scars on her face, the very first thing he does is like kisses the scar, you know, and it's like, it's an acknowledgement of the pain, but yet you're fully seen and fully loved anyway. And it really is a beautiful um, dynamic, but we we don't want our, our history and everything to just simply disappear or be lost. Um, We want it. We want something in it to become part of the sound that we have become that matters. And, and I, and I believe that that's what God does. So the sound that I am as a human being is not dependent on that history, but the sound that I uniquely am today is because of that history. It doesn't justify it. I think yeah. that's what I'm trying to say. Nothing justifies the evil. Right. But the sound I am today contains all of that, that which happened to me and that which I, I perpetrated. Yeah. Well, you know. With, without justifying it. Right. And one of the things, I was, as we tie it back to where, where your son was asking about First Corinthians, is that it feels like sometimes people, some people want to be able to see the redemption of, of the pain. But for a lot of people that think they are, you know, this terrible, awful person, it's like confirmation. How could there ever be a version of me acknowledging that that could be beautiful? Um, I know. You know, and then, but your son's, the idea that that is possible comes back to that First Corinthians 13. And you made a really interesting observation when I'm thinking, I've done so much study and no one ever said this, made this connection for me, where you said God is first, you know, all those things, patient, kind, um, long suffering, not keeping record of wrongs. And then you're, and you made that connection about, but wait, aren't we made in the image of God? And so what would that mean for us? You know, exactly. And this is, this is my friend who's a theologian, Baxter Kruger. It's his, he said this line to me first and, and it's become a, a real, uh, foundation on which I can build. And that is, he said that wholeness, wholeness is when the way of your being matches the truth of your being. And so the question then becomes, what's the truth of your being? And sadly, a lot of us who grew up in a fundamentalist type religious frame frame of reference, we were told, and we're told this by the world too, mm-hmm. that the truth of our being is that we're just a piece of garbage. We're worthless. We're you know, and it's just God and God's mercy who happens to turn in, in our direction. But we fundamentally believe that we're bad. And and as a result of that, we have nothing to build on. All we have 
all we can do is cover up what we consider to be the truth of our being. Mm -hmm. And rather than beginning to have our eyes opened up to the truth of our being, being made in the image of God, that we were a very good creation before anything got broken. That changes everything. That means that, that I, in terms of who I am, is kind, is good, doesn't keep a record of wrongs, is faithful, is pure of heart, that everything that describes the character and nature of God is f- true also about me. Mm. And once I begin to learn how to agree with the truth of my being, and, and another way to look at it is that you look at Jesus. He is the truth of our being, wrapped up in the uniqueness of my own humanity. But everything that is true about Jesus is true about me, um, because he is God, and I'm made in the image of God and likeness of God, as, is, as are you and every single person who's listening to this. Mm. But, but here's the cost. A lot of times, we've gotten so used to thinking of ourselves as crap that it justifies the, the crappy ways that we relate. The way of our being ends up matching what we think in our heart about, about ourselves. Yeah. So, you know, as a person thinks in their heart, that's what that's the way that the way of their being becomes. Isn't that terrible? It's like people really do live into the stories that are told about them. And of all places, the church seems to be the place where people are told how awful they are. And, you know, I, I saw one critique of your work from some popular people. And their one of the critiques was, you know, Paul will never be able to sing what a wretch I am. And I just thought and I was like, wow. That's that's the critique that he never has to experience that. And I thought and there's part of me that grew up that way that I would think, well, yeah, I mean, he's got to feel that. Right. And it's like, wait a second. You come back to your experience as a human being and you you were talking about any person that has ever seen the birth of their child, not someone else's child, even, but that, too. But anybody has actually seen their own flesh and blood come into the world, how that person could ever see that child come into life and think what a wretched being this is. I just, I don't know what inspires that thought. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's an irony in the statement itself to say, what a wretch I am. The I am has always been the very nature of God. And, and the I am has to exist before the I am not can have any power at all. And, uh, and it has to only, it only, the I am not can only exist because of lies. Mm -hmm. Um, the, uh, the, you know, anything that is real can, can have ontological self-existence without the opposite, without the detraction. So, for example, you can have light without darkness, but you can't have darkness without light because darkness is simply the, uh, the absence of light. You can have life without death, but you can't have death without life. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can have wholeness without brokenness. You can have freedom without bondage. And, and so any I am not can't exist without first there being an I am. Mm-hmm. And that's the categorical statement uh, of what Jesus has come to reveal to us is the I am. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, in the Gospel of John, he's all about the I ams, right? Yeah. Anybody that studies it, he's got the big seven I ams and all that. <laughs> and, but there is one I am that... that that is used by not by Jesus, and it, and John puts it in there. You know who says it? No, the man born blind. Oh, that's right. He, he uses ego i me, which is the Greek phrase that Jesus uses 
for the statement, I am. And the man born blind represents all of us, that we are so blind. And this is John's big thing about how we love darkness, we're blind. And he uses this wonderful story in John 9 um, about the man born blind to represent all of us. Mm. And, um, and at one point they're saying, is this you? Is, it looks like him, but is, he, is it him? And he, and he says, I am. You know, and, mm-hmm. and John sticks it right in there going mm-hmm. like, you know, at this point, he is not saying, oh, what a wretched man I am, right? Yeah, yeah. He doesn't have that irony. He is saying, I'm beginning to realize I'm not who I thought I was. Yeah. And, and that changes us or if we learn how to agree with it. <laughs> if, yeah. if, we keep, if we keep embracing the lie, we experience the wrath of that lie in that sense. And so you know, you're, that, and, and you're touching in on what actually gets to the, the meat of what good news actually is, because, you know, I've heard you say that, you know, shame and lies are what hold this whole thing together. And some of this bad doctrine, I think you say keeps it locked, locked up or something. Well, um, because, you know, it's nothing like having God as the one who reinforces your lies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, Paul, I wonder in your experience, there's there's some people listening to this kind of stuff, and it's I'm sure that it sparks something in them to say, wait, what if God really saw me this way? You know, what if when I do these bad things, that it really is me believing a lie and that it's not good and there's there's consequence and pain that comes from it, but it doesn't mean that he's hates me and that he thinks I'm this terrible, broken person that he doesn't want any part of. If somebody feels that thing awakening them i wonder um you know how have you seen have you seen any patterns or sort of realities what it takes for someone to be willing to kind of accept that idea that god is truly loving and not angry at them is there anything that you've seen that kind of helps people get there yeah and there's no formula to this at all and uh you know we love formula because it gives us a sense of control again but you know everybody is so uniquely damaged but they are so uniquely crafted that i think only god knows how to unwind that damage without hurting them more yeah. and 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 we've got to begin to understand that consequences are not punishments they are because we are a high order being in which our choices actually matter mm-hmm. so the things that i've watched is that one you can't do this alone. We're not designed to be alone. Uh, we've got to involve others, God with skin on, in these conversations. We've got to be able to ask the questions. If something doesn't feel right, we, it doesn't sense right, we've got to ask the questions. When We've got to start trusting the longings of our own heart. And, um, and I, you know, we've got to be able to hear it for ourselves. Another little piece to this, too, is... What I've watched in terms of people beginning to move um, out of out of the lies mm-hmm. um, is that it, they begin to understand that everything costs. Holding the lies costs, and letting them go costs, mm. because because it always moves you in the direction of trust, where lies and shame always move you in the direction of hiddenness and and aloneness. And that's the other piece. You got to come out of your secrets. Mm. That's a hard one. You know, you've yeah. got to take the risk that somebody can know your secrets and love you because they know that there is something deeper and truer about you. 
and yeah. and and you are worthy of being loved simply because you exist, not because of the damage that was done to you or that you have then perpetrated yourself. Well, and I just to that point, I know I've heard you say that trust is the fruit of knowing that you're loved, regardless of what you've done. And I know I've heard your stories of your of your life, and I know my own life, even when you know my wife Jody is been somebody who loved me when I didn't deserve to be loved. And it's like, that's even when I didn't like me, something about being loved, even when you don't like who you see yourself being, it actually has this profound effect of like, wait, somebody else sees something in me and it reminds you of, of who you were made to be. It's, um, but all that is a struggle. I suppose what I'm saying, if you don't believe that God truly is love. I mean, well, and, and, and beneath that, that you don't believe God is good. Right. Right. Or that when it comes to goodness, uh, God can define it arbitrarily. Uh, or the goodness means something different for God than what goodness means to the human heart. Like, is he going to wake up today and be feel different and be ready to bash me upside the head? Or is he going to be in a good mood today kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, it's, and you know, Jesus was very clear about this. When the rich young ruler comes to him and, and asks... How does how does one perform their way into eternal life? It's a performance <laughs> question, right? Yeah and, yeah. and Jesus goes, and he starts. The rich young ruler starts with good, good rabbi, good teacher, mm. and and that he just and then he goes into his question, and Jesus says, why why are you calling me good? There's only one who is good, and that is God. Mm. And and he just bypasses this whole performance things and gets down to something that is much more essentially the question. Mm-hmm. And it has to do with the goodness of God. And he's saying, he's not saying, oh, I'm not good. That's not what he's saying. Yeah. He is saying goodness, all goodness, real goodness originates in God. Are you recognizing in my life that goodness? Mm-hmm. Little brother, do you see the presence of God in me? And, mm-hmm. and, and part of the beauty of that is that he takes it out of the performance thing, but another uh, element of it is that that means that all goodness originates in God. So when you see, it doesn't matter whether that person, quote unquote, has a believing relationship with God or not, or doesn't understand it yet, but when you see them love their child, when you see them love their spouse, when you see them do an act of kindness, where do you think that goodness originates? It originates in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Mm. And you can celebrate the goodness that you see in humanity wherever you find it, and you can encourage it. Mm, so good. Hey, Paul, one of the things that um, that we ask people all the time on the show is uh, with fierce questions is what are the questions that you wish more people were asking? I mean, you take on so many lies in this book, um, but what are the things you wish more people were asking? Boy. That is a wide open question. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it depends on who I'm talking to. <laughs> okay, fair you enough. Uh, I, when when people ask me about, you know, what do you want people to take away from the movie, for example, mm-hmm. and, and and I'm interviewed about that, and I go like, you know what? I don't have an agenda here. I I, I want people to have an encounter inside their questions and inside their journey mm. with something that they can't explain and nobody else can that there is that that inside their world they have an encounter that meets them um inside their own story hmm. and and um and so it means that there's you know what we're, it's different questions you don't see jesus asking the same question very often again 
Um, it's always unique to the person. And, and usually they've asked a different question than the one he then returns a, another question for. Yeah. And, uh, and that question is, a, is an introduction to relationships. So, mm. um, yeah. Yep. That's fair. Totally, totally missed your question. No, right. no, no. That's fair. It's actually, it's, uh, and the, the book is actually a good version of that because you kind of talk about people asking questions themselves and that it can wake up assumptions, uh, sleeping assumptions and possibilities that, that wouldn't have been brought up otherwise. So absolutely. Um, Paul, I want to respect your time. We, we appreciate you so much coming on today. Um, obviously people can go, you know, they've seen some of your books. They've hopefully if they haven't, aren't one of the 25 million people that have read one of your other books, um, at the very least they should check out lies. We believe about God. Um, your most recent book, it's a fantastic work. It's, um, thought provoking, um, and I think it's, uh, it's well, it's well organized to help someone awaken some of their heart's questions that they may have not been paying attention to. Um, yeah. And it's really, it's not intended to be answers. You know, it, it, it's intended to be fodder for ongoing conversation. Yeah. And, and I think in that sense, it's, it's very respectful for the reader. So, well, and like we said at the outset, you're not, you're wanting people, whatever they hold sacred, you're saying, don't, you're not trying to, uh, you know, come after people and get them to think your way. You're just sharing, sharing thoughts. Correct. I don't want anything that is precious to you now to be less precious to you at the end of the conversation. And I love that. So they can go to any of your books, the bookstores out there, but then go to, um, yep. uh, William Paul Young, WM Paul Young.com. Um, Correct. has all stuff. They've got, uh, you've got a TV series going on with TBN called restoring the shack. I, I don't know where wild. is that? That's crazy. Um, I think, are you somewhere in the middle of that right now? No, yep. we shot we shot twenty five half hour episodes in five days in Montana last summer. Oh goodness! Okay, and uh, and so they've been working on the editing. I think they've released like ten of them. I haven't seen any of them, but <laughs> but, <laughs> but I was there. You lived it, and, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. But um, uh, I've heard they've done a super job uh, with the editing. It was really well crafted and professional. So I'm, I'm thrilled about that piece as well, being out there. And there's a there's a little movie coming up in September a one night kind of thing, different parts of the nation called heart of man. Okay. Um, that is really something to look forward to. Um, it's powerful deals with the whole centrality that seems to exist in the cultures, uh, especially for men, not only, but especially for men around human sexuality and, uh, addiction, all of that kind of stuff. Betrayal. That's but, something that you put together. I was just, a, I just, a, a part of it. Okay. And, uh, Okay. You know, there's a, a lot of great voices that you will watch and they've done it in a dramatic fashion that is incredibly artistic. So cool. Cool. it'll be, it'll be at theaters on, in September. You'll see notes about it in different places. Okay. Well, Paul, we're so grateful that you were willing to spend some time sharing your heart and experiences with us today and all the best to you as you continue on in your life adventuring with God. And, and, uh, may we all remember, like you tell us that Papa God is uh, especially fond of each of us. Mm -hmm. Blessings on y'all. All right. Talk to you soon, Paul. You bet. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.